Welcome to episode nine of Ask Paul Kirtley. In this episode, we're gonna to touch on medicinal herbs and book recommendations again. We're gonna talk about wool blankets. We're gonna look at useful knife techniques. We're gonna talk about hammocks and hammock liners and poncho liners versus wool blankets. And we're gonna talk about first aid in the outdoors and in specifically for wilderness travel. And we're also gonna look at where can we find materials so we can practice primitive skills. So welcome, welcome, welcome to episode nine. I'm back in Sussex for this episode, visiting one of the courses today. It's a short course, a weekend course, and uh, yeah, all going well on that course. So I thought while I was down here, I would record some answers to your questions. And I have to say, I've been a little bit remiss with email uh, questions recently. I focus very much on Twitter and Instagram and getting that going and then we had a clear out of the speak pipe as it were um, because I, again I had a backlog because I'd been in the woods a lot um, I had to kind of catch up with those ones um, because I don't get them on my phone I've got no way of accessing them while I'm in the woods I can get hold of the Twitter and the Instagram questions while I'm here if I get a bit of phone reception but I can't pull down those audio files so we had a, a, a clear out of the of the speak pipe and I know there's a few more have come in and I will get to those um, but what I've been a little bit remiss with are the email questions and I have to say I've almost been picking them out of a hat so far this year um, because I've been very pushed for time so I've opened my email see a good question I include it in the next episode but I know I've missed quite a few questions from people so apologies if I've missed your question to date I am now systematically trying to go through all of those questions some of them are duplicated some of them have been asked already um, by other people and that's one of the reasons why I do this show because I do get asked the same questions um, repeatedly or I have in the past so if I can put these shows out if I can put these videos out so that everybody gets the answers um, ahead of time if you like then uh, they get the information rather than having to ask the question in the first place and hopefully over time uh, I'm gonna gonna find it harder and harder for people to to ask questions that haven't been asked before that's a challenge for you keep keep the questions coming in though um, um, so I'm going to focus on email questions today and I've got a bunch of good ones um, I have had a look through these briefly I printed them off um, when I was back at the back at the uh, base back at the ranch if you like and um, the first one is from Robert Jordan and Robert says so Paul I travel around the world for work and have many years of service in the US Marines but I'm new to bushcraft I have two quick questions. One, what would be your go-to herb for medicinal use? And two, in your first episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, you said there were many good books on skills. If you had to pick one or two to take with you in the field, which ones would you take? Regards, Robert Jordan. So thanks for the question, Robert. Uh, again, apologies, it's taken me a little while to get round to answering it. Now, go-to herb. Um, medicinally one of the, one of the most useful things actually is garlic um it's it's uh, antibacterial it's antifungal um 
it seems to be good for your immune system if you ingest it regularly um, but clearly that's not something you're going to be foraging for uh, in many parts of the world and particularly not cultivated garlic um, but anything in that family that's edible that has that uh, has that garlic or onion smell I think is beneficial so that's one thing and I've used garlic on wounds I've used garlics uh, on cuts and burns and it does seem to aid the healing process in my experience so that's one of the things in terms of things that I could go out and pick up that are very powerful herbs one of the things that I find that I'm subject to quite often because I'm using cutting tools, one of my biggest risks of injuries really, if I'm objective about it, is cuts and, and wounds from using cutting tools. So I guess one of the things that's high up my list is uh, any herb that allows um, healing or helps um, staunch bleeding or help with um, uh, in an antiseptic uh, capacity. So any herb that helps with that, and I guess the top of the tree for me in, in, that, in that sense is yarrow, Achillea millifolium. And I'll put a little picture on the screen there for, um, for those that are watching the video. If you are um, listening to this as a podcast, if you go to my blog and have a look, um, you will see it there and I'll put a picture in the show notes as well. Special feature there. I'm not going to put lots of pictures up going forwards, but that's a special herb. It's, it has a long history of being used for wound treatment. It's styptic. It will um, help staunch bleeding. It will also help a wound knit together and it promotes healing. It stings. I think I mentioned this in one of the previous episodes. It, it does sting. Use the, uh, use the leaves, dried deer going through fantastic fallow deer just went through over there i don't know whether that showed up on the camera but it certainly got my attention um just fallow deer went bronking through there pronking through which is fantastic um proves that i am in the countryside and not in a studio somewhere with a leafy background um, so yeah you, you take the leaves of the yarrow um dry it powder it up and keep that in a bag and that goes very well on a wound as I say it stings but it does aid wound healing so I guess if I had to pick one and that's a very difficult thing to do because there's lots of different medicinal herbs and there are lots of different parts of the world and there are lots of different things that can be wrong with you but if I had to pick one that would be it so thanks for nailing me down with that question Robert second question books well on my blog if you go to resources and you find the uh, drop down that's the word I'm looking for drop down menu there um, there are uh, a list of books uh, there are a couple of different lists of books um, one is sort of bushcraft and survival handbooks that I think are particularly good uh, another one is uh, field guides for trees and plants and another one is field guides for animal tracks and sign so have a look there for my general recommendations but I think I've mentioned already um, when I was in the uh, in Canada in the boreal, I mentioned Morse Kahansky's book, pheasant going off there, definitely in the countryside. Um, Morse Kahansky's uh, bushcraft, or what was originally called Northern Bushcraft, is a treasure trove of bushcraft techniques, certainly for the Northern Hemisphere. I think that would be, if I had to choose one book, that would be my uh, port of call uh, to take that one book. And there's a lot you can work um, from the field uh, there as well. What might be interested, uh, interesting for you as well, um, with a military background, I don't know if you're familiar with Greg Davenport's book, um, that's a wilderness survival book. Uh, it's not really a bushcraft book, although there is some overlap clearly in terms of the techniques we've talked before about context um, a lot of techniques 
in some contexts are bushcraft techniques, in other contexts are survival techniques. Um, it, it depends on what situation you're having to or choosing to use those techniques. Um, the, the technique is the same, you know, the fire lighting technique might be the same that you use to light your fire when you're on a canoe trip with your mates, with your buddies. Uh, it might be the same technique that you use to light a fire when you're uh, when you're you know, potentially suffering from hypothermia, um, it's cold, it's wet, it's raining or it's sleeting and you really need a fire because otherwise somebody in your group's gonna go down or you've just fallen out of your canoe, you've lost your boat, it's wrapped on a, on a rock, on a rapids, you're left stranded with a friend with what you're wearing, you need to get a fire going. It might be exactly the same technique that you use for lighting a fire, but very different circumstances and very different outcomes to failing to get that fire going. Um, so I think we can, we can categorize books as bushcraft, we can categorize books as wilderness survival or survival, um, but it's worth studying all of these things. I think you just need to have this repertoire of techniques in your arsenal. I think you go deeper with the bushcraft skills ultimately um, than you do with the survival skills because in, in a survival situation, statistically you're not going to be there as long as you are if you're choosing to be in an environment. Um, but that's a discussion for another day. Have a look at Greg Davenport's book, US um, Air Force Survival Instructor. That's a nice book, and I think that's one of the survival books that sits nicely next to the, uh, the bushcraft books, if you like. So Moore's book and Greg Davenport's book, depending on your perspective, I think those go quite nicely together um, and give you two different sides of the same coin, as it were. So that, those would be my recommendations for today. Okay, thanks for the questions, uh, Robert, and uh, go well, enjoy your travels. Next question is from Cohen. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, K-O-E-N, Cohen. Um, and his question is about wool blankets. And he said, hi, Paul, I would like your professional opinion on wool blankets. It seems like such a hype in the bushcraft community. To me, these blankets seem bulky, heavy, and whatnot. I use a poncho liner knotted to a poncho. In really cold nights, I put a space blanket in between. These space blankets normally rustle a lot, so I put a thin plastic adhesive foil on the golden side. Lightweight, toasty warm, and quickly dry. Aren't wool blankets overrated? Um, that's an interesting question on several levels, Cohen. Um, first off, I'll reiterate something which I'm sure I've said before on this show, I've certainly said it elsewhere, I've certainly written it elsewhere in, in, in articles. Um, there is no such thing as bushcraft equipment. There's bushcraft and there is equipment. Bushcraft is knowledge and skill with respect to natural materials and natural resources that can be used by you. You may need some tools to make that possible or efficient, um, but ultimately the bushcraft is knowledge that I can use this tree for a certain purpose or a certain set of purposes, that I can use those ferns over there for a certain purpose, that I can go to that tree over there and get a certain nut and a certain type of firewood or a certain type of wood that splits in a certain way that's straight grained, or I can go to a different tree and find fruit on it that it's not particularly good firewood that I'm going to leave that alone. None of that is anything to do with equipment. That's all to do with knowledge 
and the skill to turn that knowledge into some sort of practicality, some practical outcome. That's really what bushcraft is. Um, what has happened though is that there are communities of people online often, um, or at least they're connected online, um, that are interested in bushcraft skills and bushcraft knowledge, but then they're also they're also interested in equipment. They might be interested in historical equipment. And a lot of these things get a little bit blurred. Noisy pheasants, shut up. <laughs> a lot of these things get blurred at the boundaries. That people start um, mixing the two. And I think we need to be very clear in our thinking. We need to be very, very clear about what bushcraft is. Um, and then also be very clear about the equipment that we're using outdoors and under what circumstances and why. So yes, there are some people who will say, I'd like to sleep out with a wool blanket. That's absolutely fine. And from a historical perspective, that was certainly something that people used in the past you know in the days before sleeping bags a wool blanket was a very standard thing for people to have to sleep next to a campfire or to sleep out it was the standard thing um, as a, as a bedroll if you like and you can see that in old pictures you know soldiers with bedrolls that rolled up at the bottom or the top of their packs um, Hudson's Bay blanket is a classic example you know the Hudson's Bay point blanket was extremely valued um, both as a blanket but also to make um, to make parkas out of to make uh, mittens out of and, and for various other uses because that material is very very warm and I think it has its place certainly in a historical context it certainly performs well under certain circumstances but as you say it is heavy um, wool is heavy, it's heavier still when it gets wet or damp and um, some people find it itchy and uncomfortable, um, it's bulky for the warmth because there is, you know, compared to a down sleeping bag for example, which you get a lot of warmth because of the amount of air that's trapped in it when it's fully fluffed up, you can compress it down to something that's very small and it doesn't take up a lot of room. An equivalently warm wool blanket is going to be much more bulky and it's going to be heavier. Technology has moved on, materials technology has moved on. That said, I would be happier sleeping right next to a campfire in a wool blanket than I would be in a modern lightweight synthetic, uh, synthetic outer uh, feather inner down sleeping bag because one spark on that sleeping bag is going to burn right through it and it's going to damage the, the material. So again, it's about context. Um, it's about what you're doing. Do I typically camp with a wool blanket? No. Um, I do keep a wool blanket in the back of my car though, and I have um, slept in the back of my car with just a wool blanket over the top of me. Um, I've slept out in the woods with wool blankets, uh, partly as an experiment. Um, the old military blankets are pretty good. You can make quite a good little sleeping bag out of them by um, uh, sort of parceling up your feet initially and then rolling over. Great for sleeping in front of a fire if that's all you've got. And on some courses, I have some of my students do that for particular reasons. 
Um, I've also slept out in the rain with a couple of blankets over me. The top blanket got wet, but the water didn't come through the second blanket. That was under, a, under an overhanging tree, but there was still quite a lot of water coming on me. They can be surprisingly uh, water resistant as well. And as I say, they stay relatively warm, even if they're wet, a bit like wool garments do. Um, if they get a little bit wet, they're actually exothermic. They, they actually give off heat a little bit because of the reaction between the water and the wool. But after about 25% um, soaking, they start to lose their, uh, lose their warmth. And if they're completely soaked, they're, they're less warm, clearly, because they're completely wet. Um, but so they do work under certain circumstances, but I wouldn't say they would be my first choice for a serious outdoors trip now, um, because frankly, there are better options. You know, if you are, um, if you're undertaking a hiking trip or a canoeing trip, I would have a sleeping bag. Um, even if I'm hammocking, which I don't do really, unless I'm in an environment where I need to be up off the ground, I'm quite happy sleeping on the ground. Actually, I prefer to sleep on the ground and uh, because my, my back prefers it. Uh, I don't have a bad back. I just like being flat on a hard, hard, relatively hard surface. It's the same as I don't like soft um, mattresses. Um, even if I was sleeping in a hammock, I would be using a poncho liner or some sort of lightweight sleeping bag that was suitable for a tropical environment in a hammock, for example. Um, so I think wool to an extent is overrated in the sense that there are some real zealots who will tell you it's wool or nothing. I think that's a slightly narrow view. Um, I think if you want to camp out in the old style and take a historical perspective, um, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a very pleasant thing to do. I'd encourage people to try it have a good campfire with your mates, everybody bed down around the fire, have a good chat and banter around the fire and it's, you get the warmth of the fire, everybody goes to sleep. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Even within a, a shelter, if you build a shelter, you can make beds. A wool blanket is all you need. If anything, fire in the middle, you don't need a huge fire. Again, it's a very pleasant social way to be camping out in a really quite old fashioned way. Um, is that something I do on every single trip? Absolutely not. I don't have time to be building shelters and um, sleeping out under the stars isn't always uh, practical. So um, under some circumstances, great. Other circumstances, absolutely not. Um, that's my view. Um, you know, you, you take your own view, try these things, find what works for you. That's absolutely fine. And different contexts have different solutions to them at the end of the day. And I, I don't listen to anybody who's dogmatic about any one particular thing. I think there's lots of different solutions that work best in different scenarios. Good stuff. Next question, see if the pheasants can stay quiet long enough. So this question is from Chris, Chris Sharrock. Chris asks, what are the most helpful knife techniques you find yourself using when out doing bushcraft? For example, I've seen people hold their knife close to their chest, then pull whatever they're carving towards their armpit while keeping the knife stationary. Um, so I think you're uh, referring to the chest lever grip. It's not quite hold the knife stationary and move the piece towards your armpit. Um, it's more of a sort of chicken wing movement where you're pulling the two apart using the muscles between your shoulder blades. And they're very powerful muscles, and it's, but it's, it's a powerful cut, but also a controlled cut. Requires pretty much a reverse grip on the knife. 
and it requires you to be cutting horizontally. You don't want the knife anywhere near the blood vessels in your, in your throat, clearly. Um, you don't want any vertical action to it. You want it all to be horizontal, the blade to be horizontal, and those two moving apart and its elbows back and together. That's the chest lever grip. That is a powerful cut. I do use it sometimes when carving. I do use it sometimes when taking side branches off green sticks that I've cut for various materials where you've got a little knotty side branch. You can quickly pop through them with that chest lever grip. That works very well. But generally the most useful cut is just the basic forehand grip. Um, hold a fist basically with your knife in it with a normal forehand grip like you're playing tennis and then cut with your knife that way. That's the knife, that's the knife cut I use 75 to 90% of the time I would say um, for all manner of different uh, uses. Um, a lot of people will put their thumb on the back of the knife when they're doing that. That tends to just give you a sore thumb and a blister certainly if you're not used to using your hands outdoors but even so it's not as strong. Um, if you just make a good strong fist around your knife handle as long as your knife handle is comfortable in the hand you get good powerful cuts from that and then just remember to cut away from your body cut to the outside of your body if you can. Um, don't go anywhere near the major blood vessels which are all on the insides of limbs, femoral arteries, radial artery. You don't want those brachial arteries, you don't want those anywhere near a cutting tool. Better to cut on the outside of your body where you've got muscle and bone um, but always be cutting away from your, your hand and always be cutting away from your body. That forehand grip is to me the most useful one. It's the one, the most used one anyway. So hopefully that helps answer your questions, Chris. Thanks for the question. Next questions come from Liam Gad. Nice to hear from you, Liam. Liam has been on a few of our courses. He's a good guy, always got interesting, insightful questions. Um, his question is, hi, Paul. I want to get into more primitive bushcraft and living skills purely out of fascination and enjoyment more than anything. And my question is, how would you recommend I come by the things I would need, such as sinew to work with, hides to cure and tan, bones to make tools, etc.? Preferably without the hefty price tag in just ordering online. Good question, actually, and, and, and I'm sure there are many other people in the same situation, Liam, that n would like to source those uh, materials but maybe don't know where to get them and maybe struggle. Um, and it's possibly why not so many people are interested or, or at least pursue those uh, skill sets because they are the, the, the raw materials are hard to come by. If you go to... Um, a museum and it was quite interesting um, you know the previous episode of this of this show Ask Paul Kirtley was filmed in Canada at the end of that trip we went to the uh, Manitoba Museum um, it's not the first time I've been to that museum but I like going to it because there's a lot of artifacts and displays in there which are directly relevant to the skill set that we're interested in and the in the area that we're interested in and living from the land um, bushcraft skills um, skills for uh, that type of wilderness in the northern forest um, and there's a lot of displays on the native peoples um, both in terms of how they lived in the summer and how they lived in the winter and they were very reliant upon hides, caribou hides, moose hides 
and then there were all the tools there which we used for working them from scrapers that were made of stone, scrapers that were made of shoulder blades of the animals themselves or the shin bone of the animal itself. Have a look at, there's a video on my YouTube channel and on my blog um, which looks at some of those things. Um, I did a little video blog of that visit so it's worth having a look. But all of those materials come from the animal, you know, the hides, the shoulder blades, the, the shin bones, um, and then when you look at processing those hides into clothing, needles, um, awls, a lot of those tools were made of parts of the, the animal. And then also bone and antler was used for fishing equipment, um, uh, from hooks to reels, to all sorts of sinews were used for making cordage as well as sewing up clothes. So every part of the animal was used. Um, these days we can go to the supermarket and, or even the butchers and get some meat but it's, it's hard to get a hide, it's hard to get a shin bone or a scapula. You um, might get some of those things in, in a big joint of meat if you buy them but it's hard to get those things and um, I think my recommendation where, where I've got those things from in the past is just form a good relationship um, or form a relationship it could even just be a commercial relationship with a gamekeeper or a local estate. Um, and there are lots of estates around, um, lots of landowners in the, when we're talking in the UK, uh, I can give you some options more broadly for international uh, viewers as well. But in the UK, um, there's a lot more deer stalking goes on in the UK than a lot of people are aware of. Um, and it's kept quiet by some people because, for example, the National Trust don't like you to know that there's deer stalking going on on their land because a lot of people object to it. A lot of people object to it because they're ignorant of the reasons why it needs to happen, um, frankly. Um, but also um, there are a lot of urban people who don't understand um, the management of the countryside. They don't understand that as deer, num deer numbers can increase 15, 20, 30 percent a year and that can cause pressure on environments in different ways. There can be overfeeding, there can be damage to trees um, which has uh, an effect over time of, of the health of forests. Um, an increasing deer population in a particular area pushes deer out into other areas which means they cross roads which causes road traffic accidents which is neither good for the deer because they're often not killed outright. Um, I find deer quite often within 20 meters or 20 yards of a road. Um, when I'm in the woods and I'm walking, if I go down to near a road in some of the places I work, you find dead deer. So they've been hit by cars, they've been injured, they've walked into the woods and they've died at some point later. That is not a good end for the deer. Um, also, it's not a good experience for the car driver. It leaves them uh, shocked um, and, and, and potentially worse. Um, and so there, there, it is necessary to control deer numbers in places like the UK where there are no natural predators for deer. Some of the deer population has been introduced and it's not uh, native in the first place. And then also the, nat the, the natural predators are long gone. There are no wolves or bears or wolverines or anything else in this part of the world anymore. And uh, it means that the deer population will, will grow unchecked until they starve, unfortunately. So um, keeping them healthy, keeping them strong by taking the weak ones out um, is what tends to happen. 
And it's not, it's not, people often think, oh, it's rich people paying lots of money. It isn't actually. It's normally gamekeepers and stalkers who take that job. It's antisocial hours. They do it um, partly because they, 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 they do enjoy it. They enjoy the countryside life, but also they respect the animal and they want to see a healthy population rather than the population that's starving because there's too many of them and there isn't enough food. Um, and also it, the, all the damage to the, to, the, to the woodland that happens as a result of that as well. So what I'm saying is um, there is plenty of deer stalking going on and that meat uh, from those animals, the venison tends to go into the, uh, the food trade, um, goes to restaurants and hotels and supermarkets. Um, but the rest of the animal isn't used for anything in particular in, in most cases. So um, what tends to happen is that the, um, the animal may be butchered on the estate, but generally the carcass goes to a game dealer. But some of, the, some, of the, some of the animals might be kept on the estate for food on the estate. So if you speak to a gamekeeper or a stalker, or there might be a local stalking syndicate and say, next time you, uh, you get a, a deer, could I have the skin? please because um, they'll often be skinning it themselves could I have the skin um, then then you may then you may be able to do that you might even be able to buy some of the animal from them you might be able to buy part of the animal um, for the meat but then also use bone it out and use the bones as well um, you know if you want some ribs um, or if you want um, a leg or what have you, you you can ask you can negotiate that I'm sure and it won't cost you a huge amount of money. Um, what you end up paying for venison in the supermarket or, or in the butchers is much inflated versus what it would cost you to buy the whole animal. Um, so if you wanted to, you could buy the whole animal if, you want, you know, if you've got a large enough freezer for all the meat, butcher it up yourself um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and have, have that all for you to use. Um, what can be hard is to get because they tend to take the feet off straight away. You, if you want the shin bones, you'll have to ask, ask for those. Again, if you have a conversation with a gamekeeper and say, next time you shoot a deer on your land and you, they'll take the legs off um, below the knee effectively, can I have those? Um, they might think you're a bit strange, <laughs> but they will get them for you, um, if, 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 you know, if you have the right relationship with them. Um, equally, um, you can get some sinews out the leg. The longest sinews are in the back, but you can get some sinews out the leg. Certainly, um, where they cut them off, there will be sinew in there. You can take that out, you can dry it out, you can pound it, you can use that. Um, that's, that's certainly possible. Um, antlers, you can get um, often um, from them because they're going to take the head off. Um, if you want to do brain tanning, then just ask for the head. Opening up the head is somewhat unpleasant, um, but the brain, any animal, any mammal has got a brain big enough to brain tan its skin. Um, so, you know, you'll need one brain for one, for one skin. So if you can get hold of the skin and get hold of the head, then you can brain tan a, uh, a hide. Um, if you get hold of a shoulder blade, you can make a scraper. Um, alternatively, you can make antler scra scrapers. Um, or you can create a metal scraper as well if you want to. That is a, it's, a, it's a smelly job, it takes a long time. Um, the longest one is always the first one that you do. Um, 
but it's, it's something that's worth learning to do. There's lots and lots you can, you know, boil the hooves down to make glue. Uh, there's lots and lots of things you can do. But I would say just going back to the, um, sort of going back to the original question, form a relationship with a local game dealer or, or better still a game uh, keeper um, because you're probably going to be able to negotiate more with them um, or a shooting syndicate um, and if you don't know how to find one of those there's probably if you live in any vaguely rural area there will be probably a gun shop near where you live and if there isn't go and find one the nearest one go and find your nearest gun shop speak to the person in the gun shop and say i'm interested in some materials from deer can you put me in touch with a local shooting syndicate or a local stalker who i might be able to talk to um, failing that if, if you don't get anywhere with them speak to the uh, british deer society somebody there may be able to put you in contact with a local stalker who will then be able to help you out with getting the materials that you that you need that would be my advice for you liam and more widely um different you know elk and moose are hunted in different parts of the world you might be able to get in touch with people who are hunters who um, process that um, you know a moose hide is a big hide to, to tan i've never tanned one myself but i know people who have in in canada and i know it's a it's a big uh it's a big job but it does produce absolutely fantastic uh absolutely fantastic leather um absolutely fantastic soft um lovely leather and um you know so if you're in if you're in north america or if you're in scandinavia where you have um elk or moose or whatever you want to call them wherever you are um, then that could be, and I'm not talking about the, the species of, of deer that get called elk in, in the States, I'm talking about the actual, what you call a moose in the United States and what are, are traditionally called elk or alg in, uh, in, the, uh, in Northern Europe. Um, that, is, uh, that is something that's worth getting hold of, bits of shin bones for scrapers, etc, um, etc. Et um, as well as some of the smaller deer, deer you know, white-tailed deer are still big, um, there's lots of materials from reindeer as well. And again, if you speak to Sami people in the north of Sweden or the north of Norway, um, you're going to be able to get hold of those sorts of materials if you ask nicely. You might have to trade for them, but uh, those type of people are going to be more understanding of your desire to learn how to use them than maybe a, a, a hunter that is just shooting for, shooting for sport. So those are my general recommendations. Find a hunting syndicate, find some people who are shooting, find some people who are perhaps using those materials in some parts of the world and, and see if you can, you can join in with that and uh, negotiate getting some of those materials. That's a slightly long-winded um, answer, but I think it's worth having the... Uh, having the discussion around the whys as well as the what, because there will be some people watching this who don't understand about deer stalking and what goes on. So thanks for that question, Liam. So next question is from Andrew Casey. Good to hear from you, Andrew. Um, his question is, I've seen a lot of week-long wilderness first aid courses out there which I'm very enthusiastic about doing as I want to undertake more journeys in increasingly wild and more remote areas. It seems to me that first aid knowledge is a must, but I can only do certain courses at certain times because of time and monetary constraints. Do you know of any courses in first aid that I could do until next year or whenever I could possibly get into a wilderness first aid course? Something will be better than nothing, surely. Thanks, Paul. 
Andrew. Cool. Um, so I would say first, for any outdoors person, first aid is up there in terms of the skill set that you should have as a baseline. It's not an optional thing. I think any outdoors person should have a basic understanding and ability in first aid, full stop. Um, just the same as I think any outdoors person should have a basic understanding and ability in map and compass navigation, should understand how to use a GPS and how they relate to each other. Um, they should have a basic understanding of natural navigation and everybody should have a basic understanding of how to light a fire and what to do in an emergency and how to signal and all those things that are just basic, you know, life-saving in extremist uh, skills. Um, and also they're going to help with the well-being of anybody that's with you and that, that's just a basic responsibility I think you have to other people that you're with in the outdoors. Um, but uh, more broadly I think everybody should have some basic first aid training. Um, you know we're talking about two days of training, maybe a weekend course, maybe a week and, and by a week-long course they're typically sort of 35 hours. Um, imagine if we took kids at school and did two days of first aid training with them um, every year. Um, what a difference that would make um, when everybody got to adulthood in terms of everybody knowing basic first aid and clearly things change over time or protocols for CPR have changed over time or best practice with asthma attacks might have changed over time but that can be you know that can be accommodated but the point is that not enough people know basic first aid, not enough people, even if they have done some basic first aid, refresh it often enough so that it stays fresh and they know what to do. So yeah, anything is better than nothing, Andrew, and I would certainly start off with doing a weekend course, a two-day course. Um, the remote emergency care courses are a good place to start for outdoors people, um, certainly better than courses that are aimed at office workers. Um, there are some week-long outdoors first aid courses that also um, or at least are based on and purport to give you first aid at work as well. I'd be a little bit wary of those because what you do with somebody that's having a cardiac arrest or uh, for example you know an extremist um, or anaphylaxis in the outdoors may well be different or at least the order that you do things might be somewhat different to what you do if you're in an office because the amount of people that are around you is different how far it is to get help or what you can do to get help is different and um, I think ideally you do a course that's aimed squarely at people who are going to be outdoors in a remote setting and you talk about going on trips in increasingly wild places. I'm in Sussex. I'm probably 500 meters from a country lane. That is more problematic as a first aid scenario than if I was in town. If I was 10 miles away in Tunbridge Wells um, and I was in the high street or on the pantiles in Tunbridge Wells and somebody has an issue, that's a very different scenario than if somebody has that same issue here in the woods. Half a kilometre away from a public road, 10 miles away from a hospital. Um, I can't get an ambulance to here, for example, so how do I alert the ambulance crew to where I am? How do I describe to the emergency services where I am? 
What do I set up so that they can find me? Do I have somebody that I can send to the road that can flag the ambulance down? Do I know the address of a local house? Or do I know the name of the pub? Or is there a church I can direct them to? You need to think in those terms. And I think office-based um, first aid trainings don't give you that experience or that thought process, that protocol. So you want to be doing a first aid, and that's before you get into wilderness areas where you might be days away from help um, or where you may be needing to speak to a, a doctor on a satellite phone. That type of scenario is very, very different again. But for most people, um, they don't consider the, you know, a walk in the woods that's not far from home as being remote, but it's much more remote than your local high street. And I think anybody that goes into any sort of outdoor setting um, and you never know when there might be a scenario where you need to have first aid skills. Anybody that goes into an outdoor setting should have training that is based on being outdoors and preferably delivered by people who spend time outdoors and understand the, uh, the compromises and the difficulties and the challenges of being even just a little bit further away from help can, can cause. So yes, do a two-day remote emergency care or a rescue emergency care course um, from a good provider. Um, the provider that does courses for us is a company called Real First Aid. Um, their uh, main instructor, Adam Gent, is excellent and I'd happily recommend him. I'll put his uh, company's details, uh, the link in the show notes. And remember, the show notes are not on YouTube. The show notes are on my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk. Find a relevant episode of Ask Paul Kirtley all the show notes are there, okay? The hub of all my stuff is always my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. So yeah, I'd recommend Adam um, at Real First Aid for delivering really good outdoors-based first aid training, excellent training. And I use him to train all of my team at Frontier Bushcraft. Um, so you can't, you know, that's my recommendation. That's that, put my money where my mouth is. That's who we use, I trust him have a look at his stuff, get in contact with him. But more generally, two-day course to start off with. Yeah, and a week-long course, that can be helpful. Um, certainly in terms, you know, what you want to be, once you've got the basics under your belt, what you want to be looking at is doing lots of scenarios, lots of scenario training, um, where you're putting the skills and the protocols um, into play in different situations with different numbers of casualties, different numbers of people to help you, different situations in terms of difficulty of how it is for somebody to get to you, um, different scenarios in terms of communications and waiting times. One of the things that we do with our staff is when we run through first aid training scenarios, even for here, which isn't particularly remote, um, is we give them realistic waiting times of how long it would take for an ambulance to come so that they understand it's not just like, oh yeah, we need to do CPR, bam, 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 I've done 30 compressions. Um, yeah, that's how I do CPR, so 30 compressions and two breaths and I've done that now. It's like, no, you're gonna do it for half an hour and see how it feels. Um, that's much more realistic. Um, and that's the sort of training I think really pays dividends in the long run because I've had members of my staff who've come across uh, other people, um, and it can be in, in just urban scenarios, like one of the guys on the way home from one of the courses recently came across a road accident on the, uh, on the M1, uh, or the A1, and um, 
he, he, had, he was pretty much the first on the scene uh, late at night, um, traveling home after one of our courses had finished. And he said his training just kicked in, he knew what to do. He triaged four casualties um, in two different vehicles. Um, you know, had his, had his, he had his blue gloves on, he put his yellow tabard on um, that he had in the back of his car. Um, and he said it was the longest uh, five or so minutes until the blue lights got there he's ever had in his life. But he did the right thing and it was his training that allowed him to, to do that. And I think there's no substitute for good scenario training. I'd done lots of first aid courses before I did any really good outdoor first aid. And the first first aid course I ever did was a first aid at work course. It was done at a um, higher education college. Um, it was done over a number of evenings, over a number of weeks. Um, and it was good basic first aid training, but it taught me nothing really about applying first aid in the outdoors. And it was only quite a few years later when I did a really good outdoors first aid training that I realized how valuable um, that specific training is and how much difference there is between a first aid at work course which is aimed at office and factory workers and a real remote course so go, go for those remote courses that are specific so that brings us to the end of this episode thanks for your questions keep them coming in if i haven't got to your question yet particularly if it's an email i will be coming to them in the next couple of episodes i've got a backlog but i'm going to be putting them out, getting through them in a systematic way now. Keep the questions coming in via Twitter and Instagram. I noticed that's quietened down a bit recently. The speak pipe questions are still coming in. We're going to address some of those in the next episode as well. Um, thanks again. Hopefully that's useful to you. Remember to subscribe to my YouTube channel as well so that you're getting these updates um, on a regular basis um, via video. If you're not subscribing to my YouTube channel, that's, that would be absolutely helpful for me. Um, not just to get this information to you in a timely basis, but the more subscribers I get on my YouTube channel and the more people are watching um, my YouTube videos, um, the more people are gonna see them. The way that YouTube works is the more popular videos are, the more people it puts those videos in front of as suggested videos. So if you like these uh, videos, please go over to my YouTube channel and subscribe, even if you rarely go over to YouTube otherwise, because that helps me out and it helps me get this information to more people like you, and it helps the broader community of people who are interested in these uh, great skills and this great knowledge that we're all interested in and interested in sharing. So thanks for your attention, thanks for your support, and I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. <music>